0: You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Islam, the real truth about the religion of peace. I'm Stephen Heiner on behalf of the Fleming Foundation, and with me is Dr. Serge Trifkovich. Dr. Trifkovitch, thanks for joining us.
0: It's my pleasure to be with you.
1: We're concluding our our two episode mini series on jihad and the caliphate, and today we're going to be talking about the caliphate, having discussed jihad and its implications, both internal and external, allegedly, in our last episode. So let's start, Dr. Trifkovic, by asking: Was there a succession plan by Muhammad?
0: Uh, There was not because he didn't expect to die fairly suddenly uh, in uh, uh, 632 and uh, it was assumed as a matter of course that uh, uh, the logical succession would go through his immediate followers who were with him in the early Meccan days and the first of those was his closest associate, and uh, there was no dispute about that. It was Abu Bakr, uh, the father of his favorite wife Aisha, and uh, uh, it seems that Abu Bakr was, uh, by all accounts, a simple man uh, who did not uh, have a great deal of charisma, who was nevertheless very effective as military commander, and who simply continued on uh, uh, the path of expansion that was already established in Muhammad's lifetime but he was getting on and uh, uh, his su- his next successor the, the, the second caliph after Muhammad Umar was younger and more dynamic and he actually embarked on uh, spectacular wars of conquest which brought uh, large chunks of Uh, the Middle East under his sway, uh, as well as North Africa. He had uh, exploited the fortunate uh, weakness of both serious empires on his borders, the Byzantine and the Persian one, which had previously exhausted each other uh, in mutual fights. Another element that facilitated Umar's conquests was the fact that many Christians in uh, the Byzantine lands, uh, both in the Middle East, but particularly in Egypt, were not orthodox, but heterodox. And uh, as many of them, like the Copts, were monophysitic, and uh, uh, they did not follow the uh, a standard orthodox doctrine on the nature of Christ as such as they were regarded they were regarded by the Byzantines as heretics and were subjected to persecution which was not lethal but was nevertheless discriminatory and uh, which limited their right to worship so in the early days of Islamic expansion The fact that uh, these people did not identify with the Byzantine rule, with the empire as such, meant that they were not prepared to offer a great deal of resistance, especially since at that time life under Islamic rule was an unknown uh, quantity. And uh, initially, uh, the conquest went hand in hand with the claim that uh, the uh, submission to uh, Islamic rule and the payment of jizya were all of the requirements needed that after that uh, each community would be free to organize itself as it deemed fit. Uh, it was under Umar that these new conquests necessitated codification of uh, the rules that would guide uh, The relationship between Islamic authority and uh, non-Muslim subjects. That's why we have this so-called Pact of Umar which determined uh, the rules of dimitude uh, and that also included a whole host of limitations Mm -hmm. on the jobs they could perform, uh, how high uh, the church spy could be, uh, why the bells were not allowed, what clothes should be worn, how they should distinguish themselves in public, and so on, including, of course, the payment of jizya in a way that symbolizes uh, the abject submission to Islamic overlordship and the acceptance of institutionalized discrimination. Uh, the next uh, in succession, Osman, the third. Uh, was the one who devoted himself to the codification of the Quran. The job was left unfinished, though both uh, Umar and Osman were murdered. Uh, Umar by his servant, manservant, and Osman by dissatisfied Muslims. And so we come to Ali, who, uh, Can you
1: give us a sense, Dr. Fitcher, of the time periods here? How long was Abu Bakr in charge and, and how long do we have these other caliphates? Uh,
0: roughly Abu Bakr, 630s, Umar, 640s, Osman, 650s. Uh, but Abu Bakr uh, was, of course, faced with the challenge of legitimizing his position because he was not... Uh, of course, success by virtue of having prophetic gift, and yet he was expected to combine religious and secular authority at the time when there was no codification, there was no formal blueprint of something that might be called Sharia constitution. Uh, Most Arabs were nominally converted to the new faith by that time, which meant that uh, uh, they were all, part of uh, this emerging Ummah, the community of the faithful, but essentially his status was primarily based on the fact that he was both close associate of the Prophet and a member of the Quraysh tribe. So he could appeal both to uh, the new faithful by virtue of his being with Muhammad at the time when in the early days in Mecca he was rejected and also of belonging by blood to uh, the elite tribe which used to guard uh, the pagan sanctuary at Mecca, and to which, of course, Muhammad was re- related as well. Uh, the, at the time of Umar's death, uh, and uh, he was killed in 644, uh, we had the entire Middle East uh, under Muslim rule and uh, uh, it was an expansion which was initially based on a string of garrisons which uh, acted as both basis for further forays and as uh, administrative uh, control points from which the primary task was to, to collect taxes. As far as uh, other forms of administration were concerned, very often they were subcontracted to the conquered and yet uh, subservient Christians, in particular the Greeks in Syria and of course Copts in Egypt.
1: When, when we're talking about the time of Ali, how long does he rule and, and what happens afterwards?
0: Ali was Muhammad's son-in-law and uh, cousin, and he was the last of the four rightly-guided caliphs, which is still looked upon many Muslims as the golden age of Islam. Uh, The period between… When
1: their rulers were getting murdered?
0: (laughs) And uh, uh, he, uh, he wanted to move his capital to Damascus, but he could never establish his full authority, because he was suspected of uh, instigating uh, Uthman's or Osman's murder, uh, his predecessor, the Third Caliph. And two of uh, the leaders of this discontent were uh, the signs of, of the Quraysh tribe, Talha and Al-Zubair. And with the support of the most influential of Muhammad's widows, Aisha, they rebelled against Ali. The resulting Battle of the Camel saw 10,000 Muslims slaughtered. Ali and his troops won, but soon they faced another contender, Muawiyah, who was the powerful and scheming governor of Syria and who accused him, as did Aisha, of complicity in the assassination of uh, uh, of Uthman. Uh, The final battle was in 661, and uh, Ali was eventually killed by one of his disillusioned former supporters as uh, they went into hiding. Now, we come to the split between the Shia and uh, the Sunnis because Ali's eldest son and Muhammad's grandson, Hassan, was uh, seen by many Muslims as the rightful heir to the Caliphate. But when Muawiyah, who uh, arranged for Ali's murder, opposed his succession and began to prepare for war. Hassan initially wanted to fight, but plagued by many defections from his camp, soon gave up and actually gave Muawiyah the right to caliphate. Uh, So what happened then was that his younger brother Hussein, Hussein ibn Ali, Ali's younger son, reluctantly went along with this arrangement while Muawiyah was alive Uh, and yet when Muawiyah died uh, Hussein refused to accept the legitimacy of Muawiyah's son and successor Yazid this was in April 680 and he raised the banner of resistance in the Iraqi city of Kufa which to this day is a holy city for the Shia Muslims, and became an anti caliph so to say. In subsequent months, he tried to set up a polity that would be based on what he regarded as true Islam as opposed to the corrupt regime of the Umayyads in Damascus. Yazid, uh, uh, Muawiyah's son, sent a detachment of 4,000 men against Hussein, whose much smaller force was defeated at Karbala in October 680. Hussein and most of his family were killed, and his severed head was sent to Yazid in Damascus. Now this, as I say, sealed the split in Islam between the Sunni and Shiite sects. The Shiites still regard Ali as the last rightful caliph, and his sons, of course, uh, as legitimate in the line of succession. And they commemorate Hussein's death in the first days of Muharram, the date of the battle according to the Islamic calendar, as a period of lament. They go through the streets of Kabbalah, whipping themselves in the back and uh, and shouting the name of Hussein.
1: So they, the reason they don't recognize Ali's sons as caliphs is because they were not able to really reign?
0: They regarded them as uh, uh, legitimate successors, but they accept that uh, they were not able to establish fully-fledged caliphate.
1: So what happens then, at, you say there's a schism, or a permanent schism from this point on, where does the line of succession, you mentioned the Umayyad dynasty, um, what dynasties do we have that come forward?
0: Well, the Umayyads had 14 caliphs uh, after Muawiyah between 661 and 749, and they ruled the Muslim world from Damascus. In 749, the last of them, by the name of Marwan, and all of the family, uh, the Umayyad successors were murdered, except Abd al-Rahman, who fled to Spain. and. Uh, By that time, of course, the Muslims were well-established in uh, Al-Andalus, as as they called uh, Muslim Iberia, and uh, Abd al-Rahman was accepted as legitimate leader there. But uh, in in the East, uh, the Abbasids came to power. They ruled from 750 to 945, and they moved the capital from Damascus to Baghdad. Uh, This period of uh, almost 200 years is associated with 38 known caliphs. And uh, the first of the Abbasids, Abdul Abbas, was a direct descendant of Muhammad's influential uncle, his uh, father's brother. But eventually the dominance of the Quraysh tribe ended. The move to Mesopotamia entailed uh, accepting many elements of uh, the then dominant Persian culture in that area and the employment of numerous Persians as uh, courtiers, administrators, and even artists and poets. And uh, uh, the period of the flowering of uh, Islamic civilization under the Abbasids in Baghdad was in fact largely due to uh, the fact that uh, this was a syncretic mix of uh, uh, Persian and Greek influences with an Islamic overlay and uh, fairly insignificant direct participation of Arabs in the recorded names of either scientific or poetic and artistic achievers. The Golden Age, so to say, or the so called Golden Age, uh, came to full flowering under Harun al Rashid. And uh, it was also the period of intense prosperity because Baghdad was the key point on uh, the silk route that connected China with the Mediterranean world. And it was in this period, in the 8th century, that the first maritime routes were opened between the Italian uh, maritime city-states, such as Venice, Genoa, and Pisa, and uh, the Levantine ports of the east. The Arabs were still only learning to sail. The conquest of Sicily and uh, uh, the raids along the northern Mediterranean shores were yet to happen, and so Baghdad was at that time uh, not only uh, the capital of the caliphate, but also a key trading city on the route between, connecting the far east and uh, and the European heartland.
1: So they, you say, have 38 caliphates in in uh, in relation to the 14 of the Umayyad dynasty. Were they the most, the the longest lived uh, dynasty? No.
0: Let me emphasize that uh, uh, the direct Abbasid dynasty lasted. Uh, 195 years, but the Abbasids overall, they ruled for, for over 500 years, even though the, uh, after 945, we no longer have the direct line of succession. And that's where the Quraysh bloodline finishes. That's when others become caliphs, which are still counted as the Abbasid dynasty, even though the bloodline of continuity from the Abbasids of 750 was no longer uh, clearly discernible.
1: It seems remarkable given the number of wives that these these people have that a bloodline could die out. Well,
0: uh, the point is that only uh, children of uh, the eldest or favorite wife were accepted as legitimate successors, and this was also the case in uh, uh, Ottoman Turkey where uh, the harem could even have more than 200 women, but uh, sultaniya, uh, the mother of the heir to the throne, was only one. Mm. And uh, uh, with the Turks, we also had the unfortunate habit of uh, the eldest brother murdering his younger siblings at the moment of the father's death, just to make things safe. Likewise, for instance, During the Battle of Kosovo in uh, 1389 uh, where the Serbs actually fought the Turks to a draw. But the battle entailed losses which the Serbs could not replenish. And for the Turks it simply meant bringing another contingent from Asia Minor. Sultan Murad was killed and his eldest son Bayazid ordered his two younger brothers who were in the middle of fighting to be strangled there and then to ensure the the smooth transition so uh, the problem uh, of succession in uh, various Islamic polities was that uh, even when uh, the principle of primogeniture uh, was accepted uh, as dominant very often younger brothers of the reigning ruler would uh, usurp the throne if uh, the heir was still too young, and the reflection of that is to be found in some of the Arab monarchies today, where, for instance, in Jordan, you had a uh, younger brother of King Hussein succeeding the throne rather than son.
1: Hmm. So, as you say, the direct uh, send, the direct uh, line of succession for the Abbasids ends in nine forty five. What happens then? Well. Uh,
0: Baghdad went into a slow decline which became precipitous with the Mongol invasion in the 13th century. And uh, after the slaughter and destruction which they inflicted on the city, even though they soon withdrew, uh, it never recovered its former glory. Uh, However, in uh, economic terms, also the Uh, focus of the Islamic world was gradually moving westwards uh, to North Africa or Egypt uh, in the middle in the heartland of of the Empire and also to uh, today Spain to Al-Andalus where it was in the 10th and the early 11th century that we see uh, again a sort of idiosyncratic uh, culture developing with strong Jewish and uh, uh, Catholic influences uh, with uh, the Islamic layer over uh, reaching them. And it was at the time of the Caliphate of Cordoba that uh, we have this again golden age of Islamic Spain, which was materially rich society, which was also somewhat more tolerant than most Islamic societies had been to non-Islam through the ages, and which, however, soon thereafter was extinguished by the hardliners from North Africa, from today's Morocco, coming over to continue the Gazette, uh, to to try and counter the Reconquista, which the Spanish Christians were waging from the north, from the foothills of the Pyrenees, towards the Mediterranean.
1: So you said that's 500 years altogether, so as you say, that gets us to the 13th century. How do we get from there to the Ottomans? Uh,
0: Well, the important episode uh, were the Crusades, and it was during the Crusades that uh, the focal point of resistance to Christendom moves from Baghdad to Cairo. And uh, uh, the important name in this context is a Kurdish uh, warrior by uh, the name of Saladin, who, after the disastrous First Crusade, uh, for which the Muslims were ill prepared and which allowed the Christians to conquer Jerusalem and to establish a foothold in the Levant, uh, successfully countered them, and uh, even though Uh, they perceived each other as mortal enemies. There were also periods of what might be termed peaceful coexistence, and also periods when, uh, uh, in particular, Richard the Lionheart and Saladin displayed a degree of grudging respect for each other, which uh, had elements of uh, medieval chivalry to it. However, there were also episodes of, uh, of extreme cruelty, For instance, uh, both the Christian conquest of Jerusalem and uh, uh, the Muslim reconquest of Acre were accompanied by by veritable bloodbaths. However, overall, uh, the current narrative on the Crusades as an aggressive attempt by European Christians to expand into the Muslim world is fundamentally flawed because Uh, It was the time when uh, uh, the Christian world still perceived itself as res publica Christiana, as uh, uh, not uh, a community divided by language or uh, by dynastic allegiance, but still fundamentally united by faith. And to them, the fact that uh, uh, the Holy Land was conquered by the Muslims in the 17th century, simply meant that reconquest was in order, even though half a millennium later or 400 years later, but that nevertheless, this was simply an attempt to put a wrong right. Now, of course, there was also an element of avarice and greed. There was also an element of adventurism. But uh, overall, uh, especially in the First Crusade, the level of uh, heartfelt passion and uh, of genuine religious enthusiasm meant that uh, uh, thousands of Europeans, not only desperate peasants and serfs who were promised release from their feudal obligations, but also uh, rich and comfortable sons of aristocratic families uh, embarked on, on, on uh, the crusade because they genuinely believed that it was their duty to liberate uh, Jerusalem, the tomb of Christ, and to open up the holy places to Christian pilgrimage. Uh, the initial problem was that uh, uh, the Seljuks, the Turkish predecessors of the Ottomans, uh, cut off access to the Holy Land pilgrims traveling through Constantinople and across Asia Minor. Uh, Ultimately, the Crusades, and sadly enough, uh, degenerated into uh, plunder of Christian cities, of Zara in 1203 and Constantinople itself in 1204. Because uh, while preparing for the Fourth Crusade, uh, Western kings and knights expected to collect much more money than they had at their disposal, so the Venetians, and they all came to Venice to be transported by sea to the Holy Land, the Venetians, seeing thousands of well-armed men without enough money, decided to uh, exact their payment in the form of, first, the conquest of the, uh, the city of Zara on the Eastern Adriatic, which had been taken away from Venice by the Hungarians, And then, by diverting the whole expedition through the Sea of Marmara to Constantinople, where they actually conquered the city in 1204 in an act of destructive plunder that had no uh, prior equivalent in the Christian world. Of course, uh, we had the Great Schism of 1064, but nevertheless, the Byzantines, the Greeks were also Christians. And yet, the way that... The imperial city was treated, and it was by far the most civilized and richest city of uh, uh, the Christian Commonwealth at that time. And the way that Latin kingdoms and principalities were established on the ruins of the Byzantine Empire meant that even when the Byzantines returned to Constantinople 60 years later, the empire could never come back to its former glory. Even when the Latin kingdoms and principalities ceased to exist in the 1260s, the empire was unable to recover from the destructive shock of 1204 and uh, remained in existence until 1453, the fall of Constantinople, but the defense of Europe was fundamentally weakened because the Fourth Crusade actually undermined the pillar of resistance to the Turks on their path to the Balkan Peninsula and later on the heart of Europe, the Pannonian Plain. Uh, uh, The Byzantine Empire spent the last 175 years of its existence as a mere shadow of its former self.
1: Well, and then, of course, we get to the conquest of, of that city, uh, uh, finally, and, and the, the long, from that period on, as you say, the successors of the Seljuk Turks were the Ottomans.
0: Uh, the first foray of Turks into uh, Europe occurred in the 1350s, uh, and uh, it should be mentioned that they were initially invited by one of the rebellious Byzantine princes as uh, mercenary auxiliaries. And uh, this is ironic because also the first foray of uh, Saracens into Iberia in uh, 708-709, that is to say even before the uh, war of conquest of, uh, of Spain, occurred also at the invitation of uh, uh, a Christian bishop, no less, who was unhappy with the then Visigothic ruler of Spain. Uh, but already by the end of the 14th century, uh, the Byzantine Empire was effectively reduced to a small strip of land on both sides of the Sea of Marmara, to the city of Salonika and to some holdings in Peloponnese and the Aegean Islands. And uh, a major factor in the decline of Byzantium was uh, uh, the influence of uh, Venice. The Serenissima, the Venetian Republic, wanted to uh, completely dominate uh, the eastern Mediterranean, all of the key trade routes, and uh, the privileged position that they had traditionally enjoyed in. Uh, Constantinople where they were exempt from taxes and from import duties uh, uh, was reinforced by the fact that the Byzantines in the final stages of their existence did not have either a navy or a merchant fleet of any significance so the Venetian Avarice meant that uh, they regarded uh, their relationship with the Byzantine Empire as a sort of Uh, dominance in reversal, whereas in the early days Byzantium dominated Venice, and Venice was even a subject to uh, uh, Byzantine supreme authority. In the final stages, uh, the Venetians weakened the Byzantine Empire, both financially and institutionally and politically, to such a point where it was no longer able to offer any, any resistance to the Turks. The final gasp was... Uh, the Council of Florence, where uh, the last Byzantine Emperor, Constantine Dragash uh, was uh, forced to accept the Union, uh, whereby uh, the Eastern Greek Orthodox Church would accept the supreme authority of the Roman Pope in exchange for Western help. Now, uh, this arrangement was effectively annulled by the people of uh, Byzantium or rather the Greek Orthodox people who regarded it as abhorrent but at the same time uh, the last emperor did not obtain any meaningful help from the west in fact the only contingent that came to his assistance was from Genoa and it numbered just a few thousand people. Uh, he was left alone uh, to his uh, destiny, which entailed dying uh, a martyr's death on Tuesday, 29th of May, 1453. Again, it was a Christian act of betrayal that facilitated the fall of Constantinople, a Hungarian engineer who knew how to cast a cannon of huge caliber, capable of destroying city walls, sold his services to Sultan Mehmed, Mehmed the Conqueror, was his title after the fall of Constantinople, for a hefty sum of money. Uh, What followed was uh, a massive slaughter. Uh, It lasted three days, after which the Sultan decided that enough was enough. Uh, uh, many Greek survivors were sold into slavery. Some were left at large and actually used to uh, were left to rebuild the city which at that time was effectively depopulated. and uh, of course it was now meant to become the capital of the empire, uh, even though he destroyed the remnants of the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, Mehmed uh, wanted to take its mantle and its tradition and in geopolitical terms, indeed, uh, he did inherit an imperial concept. The one that uh, was later to translate into the conquest of Rhodes and Cyprus, the attempted conquest of Malta and the projection of Ottoman sea power throughout the Mediterranean area also a very ambitious project of conquest uh, of, of Europe itself which proceeded under Suleiman the Magnificent in uh, uh, the first half of the 16th century when uh, uh, Bulgaria, Serbia having been extinguished in the 15th century, it, 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 uh, uh, Hungary's turn came in 1526 with the Battle of Mohach when the king and the the flower of Hungarian nobility were all killed, and the first siege of Vienna in 1529. So within uh, 80 years of the fall of Constantinople, the Turks were already at the gates of Vienna and controlling most of the Danube Valley and most of the Pannonian Plain. Effectively, they had become a European power.
1: With that unfortunate end to the episode, Dr. Gritch will will finish up here and in our next episode, we'll continue discussing this history and uh, do a deeper dive into the Crusades, which you alluded to in this episode. Thanks for your time. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation, All Rights Are Reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire read broadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming dot foundation. Until next time on behalf of all of us here at the foundation, make the most of a dark age.